Let's turn together in the back of our hymnals to Article 28 of the Belgic Confession. So we continue our study there, page 865, and then turning in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3, found on page 977 in the Bibles there in front of you, Ephesians chapter 3. Last week I asked a number of questions. How confident are you in the future of the church? Will, will she survive? And is what we're doing here irrelevant? And we looked at that and we saw that God's plan is to build His kingdom through the church, through the preached word that people are gathered in. Tonight we look again at the church. It's central to God's redemptive plan and it needs to be central to our lives. We need to reflect upon what is the call, what is the obligation of church membership. I direct you to Article 28, the Belgic Confession, as I read that for us. We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved, this holy assembly and congregation being what he's talking about, the previous article, the holy church preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, that this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved and there is no salvation apart from it. No one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. But all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. And to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. And so, all who withdraw from the church or do not join it act contrary to God's ordinance. Well, people of God, it's very clear what uh, the Bible is teaching and how the confession captures it quite well. It's God's will that people join the church. He promises to give his son a bride made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He says, pray to me and I will give to you the nations, Psalm 2, speaking of the Lord Jesus. As we turn to Ephesians, we want to think about the summary or what's been going on in Paul's letter before we come to our passage tonight. Paul's been talking about the church as the household of God. How is it described? It's described as the household of God. This is where the family of God dwells. It's made up of people from all backgrounds, all histories. The church is not a political entity. It's a spiritual body into which God gathers his people It's a place where God's wisdom is on display. Chapter 3, verse 10 says something very interesting. There, Paul writes, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed before rulers and authorities in heavenly places. They see some way we don't quite understand. They're watching, they're observing that God's plan is to build a family out of 
fallen human beings to his glory. And these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places take note, and therefore they attack. Satan and his minions attack the church, wanting to see this testament to God's wisdom and to his power. They want to see it fail. They want to see it be, they want to destroy it. But because God, or because Christ is the head of the church, the church will prevail, and she will look like nothing else in the world. I don't mean to say that we're odd-looking, strange-looking in the sense of appearance, but, but different in the sense that we, we are marching, we are walking in the way that God has intended, contrary to what the world has said, which is that we will do what we want to do. God says, these are my commands. You walk in this way and you shall live. And since the fall, we've said, well, no, that looks desirable. I like that way. I want to go that way. And so we see this battle. We see this difference of appearance, of allegiance. Where? Where are we going to be found to be walking? Paul calls the church... A new, a new humanity. Back in chapter 2, in verse 19, he says, We are members in a household, in a new family, made up by God. It's supernatural what God is doing. He creates this body that the world might stand at least in the end, we'll stand amazed. And we trust that even now they'll see the glory of God and say, how can those people, how, how is it that they live like that? How can they live together in unity? We're going to look at that a little bit more tonight. Paul, for Paul, there's no more stark contrast or stark division in the human race than that of Jew and Gentile. And yet he says, as we're leading up to our passage here, that Jew and Gentile are brought together in Christ. What would be the most, the most basic division we'd have today? Probably in our day and age, since our focus is all on, on government and politics, probably govern, politics, right? The, what are the two extremes? Well, the two parties. How could they possibly live together? How could they possibly get along? We see such division today. That says something about where our God is, and our hope is in that, or in this party, or in that party. Very clear difference. But God has made us to be in communion with each other. It's not good for man to be alone. Made for Adam a wife, and he has called us to fill the earth and subdue it, to be in communion, united in purpose, that is, for his glory. Gospel has power to do unexpected things. Word of God unites people that wouldn't otherwise even rub shoulders. God's work is to reverse the curse of this alienation or this competition that we, that we have. Well, I'm going to be first, or I'm going to be most noticed. I'm going to have the most likes or the most friends or the most followers. God brings people together. Paul says that stark division between Jew and Gentile is removed by the gospel. 
The dividing wall of hostility is brought down, chapter 2. Chapter 3, he says, the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was unheard of. That was absolutely, it was like, he's lost his mind. Can't possibly be. That, 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 that division could never be healed. Well, the church is a place of unity and, as we'll note tonight, diversity. It's not, it's not uniformity per se. We, we recognize different gifts, different abilities, different perspectives, but all united in the gospel. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church as we come to our passage, his prayer for the Ephesian church at the end of chapter 3 is this, that they might know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. The Lord was able to do this in them. Then we pick up our passage for tonight, verse 20. Listen to the reading of God's word. Paul Paul writes this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So be it. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to mankind. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Dear people of God, the church of God will endure. We catch a glimpse of it at the end of history. If you wanted to look up Revelation chapter 7, look in verses 9 and 10. What do you see there? You see the nations around the throne declaring the praises of the Lamb to the glory of the Father. 
This is at the end of time when the sun will return. There isn't a hint of, uh, as we look at that picture around the throne, if we were to look at that more carefully, there isn't a hint of self-absorption. There's, I wanted to say individualism, but there, there, there are, they are individual people. But, but there's no sense of self-absorption, like they're there just for themselves and for their praise. They're there with a common purpose, to sing God's praise. There isn't a sameness either, and we want to see that, the unity and the diversity in the church tonight. There isn't a sameness that they're all exactly the same. There's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We'll come back to these things throughout the sermon tonight. The first thing I want us to consider is that that part of the article, which uh, Article 28, to kind of come back to the, the opening words that are rather striking to us because they sound... Well, they don't sound Protestant. Apart from the church, there's no salvation. But the Protestant reformers did confess that. They said apart from the church, which is the household of God, which is the bride of Christ, there's no salvation. We're to be united to Christ, to be identified with him. Further, Jesus says it this way, the keys that open the kingdom of God are given to the church. The keys that close the kingdom of God are given to the church. Heaven is opened through the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And that brought by those who are ordained to that office, the servants of Christ, ministers, preachers of the word. Those who hear and believe are brought into the family of God. Church also has the the keys which close the door to heaven. We'll, We'll look at that in the upcoming articles. And that is discipline to those who reject God's ordained officers and the call of God through the church, the door to heaven is closed. It says if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. We will have eternal life. Listen to what John 3.36 says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That needs to be made clear by the elders, the church officers, to those who are in the church, and to say that if you, are a, uh, if you are united to Christ, if you believe in Christ, then you are united to him, and you are to be gathered to worship. Church is the place where God ordinarily saves People. Now, the reason that word is used, and as we look around and we say, well, why is that word ordinarily in there? It's because God can save people outside of the church. They come to faith, and maybe, maybe uh, even j- just shortly before their, their, their death, they can't attend a church. God saves people. He can save people that way. But he, he puts his promises on the church, on the life of the church. They're attached to the church because that's where his word is preached. That's where the sacraments are to be rightly administered. And that's where church discipline is exercised so that God might be all in all, so that he might be glorified. He says, come, come to the family, be a part of the church. It is here where we're guided from his word, by his spirit. Writer of the Belgic Confession says it this way, no one ought to withdraw from the church content to be by himself. 
I don't want to get into all the history behind that statement, but in, in that time, there were those saying, well, I don't believe I can stay in the church as it is. I, I'm going to depart. I'm going to have my own church. I'm going to have my own uh, place of worship. I'm going to have my own gods. And you, I've preached this article before, and I looked at, at Judges chapter 17, and there Micah, a different Micah than prophet Micah, had his own idol and had his own, his own uh, uh, church in his home. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the book of Judges. And if there's anything that we make clear from the book of Judges, it's this. The people were doing as they saw fit in their own eyes. I bring that up because there's a warning when we say, well, I'm going to have my own, uh, my own leaders. I'm going to have my own uh, place of worship. I'm going to have my own uh, religion, as it were. God says, no, I have a place where I am to be worshipped, and that's in church with, with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. No one ought to withdraw from the church content to be by himself. Now, the Word of God is at odds with the individualism, and as I use that word, what I mean is by, it's at odds with that self-absorption of our culture today. It isn't about what I think is right or my uh, perspective or my way of doing things. It says God has made clear His way to be worshipped and how He's to be worshipped and who He is. And all the rest, that we look to his word and don't come up with these things on our own. The wording is very clear in Isaiah 53. It says, we've all gone astray. Everyone's turned to his own way. We have to be brought back. We have to be kept, to be kept safe in the family of God under the preaching of his word. Today, however, we've gotten far from authority and far from the notion that we have to, to follow commands. Indeed, it's breaking down, it seems, more and more moment by moment. We say, I can't trust that authority. I can't trust that authority. I can't trust this or that. So people say, well, I, my freedom, I have freedom to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I know myself best. I know my needs. So, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says we don't even know our own hearts. But God knows us, and he says there is a way to live, and that is in an ordered liberty, that is to be set free from sin, that you might be governed by the Word, and by my Spirit, to turn from destructive beliefs and behaviors, to guard the good deposit, to teach it to that next generation, as we heard a bit this morning. Part of that faithful living is a testament. It's not just for us. It's not just to keep circle of wagons and say, we just have to make sure that we stay on the straight and narrow, but it's, it's for the world to see that in our living, we would put a lie to what the world says about Christians, that we're unloving, that we're selfish, that we're inward focused, and so forth. We are to be living for God and for each other. And we're to be also encouraging others to come, to live for the Lord, to live for one another. When, when God calls us to live under the word, it's not destructive to the self as we hear today. It's not destructive to the self and who I see myself or imagine myself to be. Rather, it's to direct us into full living. Christ says, I have come 
that you might have life and have it to the full. I've shown you the way. You know the way. The self is not erased by submission to the word. Our identity is image bearers of God who are alive when we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as Paul says it here in the opening of chapter 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's what it looks like to be living together, knowing our faults, our weaknesses, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God promises to speak to our need in the church. When we worship, we have the privilege of hearing him speak, and we should rejoice at this. Think of all the psalms that talk about how they praise the Lord. They come together to do what? To praise the Lord for the wonders that he has done. To focus them upon God in their trial and tribulation. They're filled. The psalms are filled with examples of God's people coming together to do that. We must not give up meeting together. We must encourage each other as we await the arrival of the Lord. Just to use, uh, to, to think of one particular passage, what happens when people come to salvation in the book of Acts, it says they were what? Added to the church. They became a part of the church. They said, yes, I want to be identified with the people of God. I'm, I'm, I'm finding there the fellowship. I'm finding there the truth by which to, to walk so that I'm not confused by what I see around me. And I'm not concerned about what others may think of my being joined to the church. In fact, I want to speak to them about the joy of living under the Lord and for the Lord and for my brothers and sisters. They joined the church, and then they gave the sign and seal of the covenant to their children, as we see in the book of Acts. God has ordained that salvation is offered for the world, not at home, nor at the beach, or anywhere else, but in church. Therefore, we go there to hear his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they listen to me. We are in the hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ through the preached word. Maybe I could put it a different way for the children. Children, imagine you want to buy a bike. Where do you go? Well, in my old-fashioned way of thinking, I suppose you could go to Facebook Marketplace, and you could, there's a number of places, but you go to the bike store, right? You don't go to the bakery. You say, well, I'm looking for a bike. I'm, I, I think I got a pretty good, good possibility that I'm going to find a bike at the bike store. Well, scriptures tell us, where do you go to hear about the Lord? Where do you go to grow in your faith? You go to church. <laughs> where, do you, where do you take your friend when, you, when, when they're saying, well, I don't really know what this is all about? You say, well, come to church with me. Hear about who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, and of how important it is to be connected to the church. Part of the problem is, I think we, well, I don't think, it bears it out in in the statistics, we've lost our confidence in the preaching of the word. We think it's weak, that it's not effective. 
And the Bible addresses that very thing. It says the gospel appears weak, but it is the power of God and the salvation of those who believe. What, who is being glorified in the, in the weakness of the preaching of the word? God is because he uses the preached word and creates faith and strengthens faith and, 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 and builds up life. End of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. What does it say there? It's his glory in the church that we're thinking about. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory. It's not about, well, how are we going to get more people into the church? How are, what are we going to do to build the church? Now, I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a few moments. But our confidence is in this, that as the word goes forth, God is drawing people. What does Jesus say? When the Son of Man is lifted up, he will do what? Draw all people to himself. It's a supernatural community. Therefore, that message must be from God. Paul says that we are to connect one to another, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace recognizing that though we may have different backgrounds, different stories, the unity that we have is strong, indeed unbreakable in Christ. So Christ saves his people through and unto the church. No salvation, salvation apart from the church. The idea of church membership is assumed in the Scriptures I wanted to say more about that, but there's an article coming out next month's Courier newsletter, so I'm not going to go there, but it's, it's assumed it's seen throughout the Scriptures in, in church membership. Where, where is it found? Well, there's numerous passages. You can read about that next month's Courier. What do we believe? What do we confess? Well, it, has, it says it right there. We believe, we confess that there's no salvation apart from the church, and no one ought to withdraw from the church, but Instead, to join and be united to the church is what God calls us to. We're called to keep the unity of the church. People are obliged to join and unite with the church, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given Now, I want to say this, that, that unity doesn't mean that there's uniformity per se. As, here's where I want to speak a little bit about that diversity. We have different gifts here. We have musical gifts. We have organizational gifts. We have leadership gifts. We have support gifts. We have technological gifts. We have all kinds of different service gifts that we can use. We're called, however, to exercise them for the common good, not for self-focus, but for the common good and for God's glory. So there's, there's, not a, uh, there's not a focus on individuals in the sense of self-absorption, but neither is there this idea that, that we're all going to be the same, that everything's going to just look the same. Mark set everybody next to one another and say, well, they all look pretty much the same. There's, there's diversity. God equips and provides that for his church. So the gospel confronts the individualism, self-absorption of our day, that is, or the focus, if we might say, on, on the self as authority. 
But the gospel also highlights the beauty of diversity in the church. Christ died to save people from all different backgrounds. He brings people with all kinds of different gifts and abilities together to show the glorious diversity of God's creative power, His redemptive power. And we're to use those gifts, not to, not to have them lie dormant, but to see how we might serve to build up one another according to the gifts God has given as members of each other in the same body. What is to be attractive, among other things, we could think of many things that should, should be attract people to church, but among other things, what is to be so attractive about the church is that people from different backgrounds with different interests can come together, and we see that there is such a thing as true unity. Working together, serving together, not self, but the body. The church is held together by the supernatural power of God. And their focus then is to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, the Spirit is necessary for that. It's the unity of the Spirit, not our own doing, but to be at peace with one another. The identity that we proclaim is sinners made new in Christ, purposing to live together for the glory of God. The church then offers a compelling case to the world to believe the gospel. And not only the truth that it sets forward that there is salvation from sin that we're delivered unto everlasting life. But even now, the difference, the change that it makes in us as we look at one another and want to serve together side by side, rolling up our sleeves as it were, not living in isolation, but living in community. Mark Dever in his book, The Compelling Community, tells us how the church should look versus how it often looks. There's some, there's some helpful points in his book that I want to just, a few of which I just want to bring up tonight. Um, The church, he says, should be growing with reliance upon God to work peace and to bring all kinds of people under the common confession of Christ. There are ways to grow the church, different ways. There's a, there's a, a sociological model, I guess I would call it. I don't remember what he calls it, but there's a gospel plus community and there's a gospel revealing community. What he means by that, first off, the gospel plus community is, well, we're, we're here to hear about Christ, but there's something else, and that is that we have all these common interests, politics, socioeconomic, um, we grew up and we went to school together, we had all of these things. And that's not to say that those aren't uh, going to bring unity or that that's a problem. But gospel-revealing community is when there is in the church a diversity that says that people from all different walks of life are unified, though you wouldn't expect them to be brought together, but they're brought together because they're united in Christ. It's a supernatural thing. I don't know how how deep I want to get into this as to what it looks like, but Say, for example, you're trying to build a church and you say, well, what does the community, what's it looking for? Oh, it's looking for a program to take care of children so that moms and dads can work out of the home. Well, let's offer that and suddenly you've got people coming and they like it because they've got a place for their children and they maybe even join the church and you say, well, we're growing. Well, we ask ourselves, is that, is that the 
primary focus of, of the church when we're seeking to grow? Or is it we're saying we're going out and sharing the gospel. We're going out and telling people about Christ. And we want to see people from all backgrounds, all different walks of life saying, you know, I, I, I don't see eye to eye with these people in a lot of things. But, you know, I love these people because they love the Lord and I love the Lord. And the church is to be such a compelling community. Uh, if they look at a church that has uh, filled with, with common interests and in, in, in common programs that everyone is, is, is around, there's a, there's, there's a certain measure of, of reflection saying, well, that's pretty, pretty great, but they're all the same and they, they think the same, they do the same things, they go the same places. But when the church is made up of people from all different walks of life, where the depth goes beyond cultural issues and the focus of the community is Christ, that is his life, his death, and his resurrection and his ascension, then the world's caught off guard and they say, well, wow, these, these people all, I, I, they all have, have their... their individuality, but they're united in, in this wonderful, joyous community, and they love the Lord. I, I want to be a part of that. They ask, well, how is that working? Well, the answer is the Lord is present in the gospel and in his spirit. And, and I don't know that there's a formula for that. It's, it's not something we say, well, we've got to have a certain number of these people and a certain number of those people and a certain number from this background. And so, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is putting the gospel forward, saying that Christ has come to deliver us from bondage to sin so that we might be united and love one another. We say, well, their gospel is bringing them together and holding them together. They have this in common, one body, one, they're, they're serving one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles who said, we have, we have nothing in common. And yet, in the gospel, they are walking together. He says, I want you to understand the height and the breadth, the length and the, the depth of the love of Christ. That the world might say, wow, there is, there's power in this in the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing these people together. We see in the early church a group that defied all expectations. It's made up of people of the, low, the lowest level and the highest level of society. And they lived together as they looked with joy and hope to Christ, their only, their only hope in life. And the focus was here in Paul's letter. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That does things beyond our expectations. If we see it lived out, it's, it's beyond our expectations. As to who had become a part of the body of Christ as we seek to serve and to live before the watching world. Christians adorn the doctrine of God when they live in that grace-shaped living comes out of union with Christ. When we submit to the whole counsel of God, we come alive to our 
diversity, but also our wonderful unity and harmony created by God in Christ. Now, this is another sermon, and I, I decided I, I would leave it as another sermon and not try to bring it tonight. But the article goes on. Notice what it says. To preserve this unity, I'm at the end of Article 28, to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it. Even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. There's actually three sermons in here, but we'll just go with that first part. That is, what is it talking about here? Can, can, I, can, I, can I reach out to my unbelieving neighbor or am I to separate from my unbelieving neighbor? What's being said here? Well, I wanted to summarize it, and I think most of us know this phrase, we are to be in the world but not of it. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. You remember what is happening. There's a lot of immorality in Corinth. And he says to them, uh, let, me, let me just turn there. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he, he says to them that uh, this immorality needs to be, uh, to be removed from you. He says, I don't want immorality in the church. But he says, I don't mean that you are to be uh, brought out of the world. No, he says, I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't associate with anyone in the world who acts this way, they, they're, they're still unaware of their sin. He says, I'm talking about what's happening in the church. So there's a purity in the church that needs to be protected. There are those who bear the name of Christian and are members, and they say, well, I'm going to live this way. I don't care what the Bible says. That has to be addressed. But we don't then simply turn our backs on those in the world and say, well, you're not living the way you should be living, so I have nothing to say to you. And they should say, you know, I vehemently disagree, or they should be able to say, they won't come to this right away, they should be able to say, I vehemently disagree with how those people, what those people believe, but I can't say they don't love me, that they're not interested in me. And so there is that very, there is that very uh, uh, challenging aspect of the church being salt and light in the world, and yet being salt and light in the world, and not saying, well, we're just going to cut ourselves off from the world. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there is no fellowship between light and darkness. There is no fellowship between uh, Christ and Belial. Don't, don't start taking their, their practices and start taking their language and taking their, their vows. No, but at the same time, you are my messengers. You are to go out and call people to reflect upon the fact that they're image bearers, that they are to live for the Lord. So to be in the world, but not of it. And then the other aspect of this article, which we could go into further, is that matter of no matter what the civil authorities say concerning this, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result, there is a commitment to the body of Christ that, that is uh, fearless, 
Paul, uh, Peter says before the Sanhedrin, before those who have him on trial, he says, we must obey God rather than men. You do what you're going to do, but our obedience, our allegiance is first and foremost to the Lord, and we will not sacrifice that which is important to our eternal life. That's, how, that, that's, that's, the, that's the significance of the life of the church. And the believer, we're going to just say, well, you know, I can, I'll go when I can make it. I'll, I'll go when, when, I'm, when, I, when I don't feel like I might be a little hypocritical because I'm going and I'm not really into it. We need to go. <laughs> and to hear that that attitude needs to be addressed. And that our apathy toward the church needs to be set aside for the glory of God and for the good of us. So, the article ends, all who withdraw from the church or do not join it, for the reasons I've stated and for many others I'm sure they could come up with, all who withdraw from the church or do not join it act contrary to God's ordinance. Brothers and sisters, this command is offered as a loving offering from God when he says, I call you together that you might hear the word of life that you might know who I am, what I have done. And then the work of the Lord is to stir us, to grow up in every way into Him, in every way into Him, in all of the things we've mentioned and many more, in zeal, in commitment, in exercise of gifts, to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, that is Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There it is again. He gives us all these, these, these different connections, these joints, so that each part working properly might build up the church in love. That together we might worship our great God and Creator, that we might know that He is deserving of our love, the object of all of our affections, and that it would lead us then to love others as we learn more of him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think upon these matters, we cannot even begin to, to answer them or discuss them all, even that last point, the call to holiness, to being set apart. What does that mean? There's, there's a depth there that we could go much deeper. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that you came to earth, the way that you descended to the lower regions, to earth, from heaven, setting aside your glory with the Father, which you had with him from eternity, to love, to seek, to save the lost. Lord, may your church be engaged in that. May we be engaged in that every day. Thinking, praying, strategizing about how we can do that more effectively as you speak to us even here tonight. Speak to our hearts by your Spirit that we would go forth, not with guilt, thinking, well, I've got to do more of this, 
but with a, just a humble joy that we are in a privileged position to know you and to know what brings down that hostility that is seen between people, which is so evident today. It is the gospel. Make us shining lights for the gospel, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.